Chapter Eleven of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography Memories and Experiences, Volume One by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter Eleven. On leaving Washington for Falmouth, I again had a narrow escape. On the Potomac Bridge my horse was frightened by an approaching steamer and tried to leap into the river, getting almost over. From December 15, 1852, when I reached the old home at Falmouth, to February 14, 1853, when I left for Cambridge, my old journal is a sort of herbarium of the thorns that pierced father, mother, and myself. A cruel side of the situation was that my new steps had the appearance of being merely metaphysical. I was breaking my parents' hearts, so it seemed, on abstract and abstruse issues, while really I was aiming at a new world. But this new world was of such a serious character, the abolition of slavery to begin with, that any intimation of it only made the doctrinal heresies more painful." Once more on Christmas Day I heard the angel singing in old St. George's, Glad tidings of great joy I bring to you and all mankind. Once more I knelt with my parents on watch night, and sang the covenant hymn, Come let us anew our journey pursue. And once more went out on New Year's Day, hiring day, and wrote in my journal, I feel to-night somewhat sad, I find how little sympathy I have with the existing state of things, as I saw the slave hiring to-day, I found out how much hatred I had of the institution, and how much contempt for the persons engaged in it. You look, said a friend, as if you were not in the world. I am not. My dear relatives and friends cannot sympathize with and encourage the deepest faith and reverence in my soul. O my father, do thou love me in this time of fire." The most notable figure in Fredericksburg was still John Minor. A bachelor past middle age, he devoted himself to his aged and blind mother and to studies. Having occasion to call on him, he proposed a walk. We crossed the bridge of Stafford, strolled on the Washington farm, and talked on philosophy. He smiled at the phrase dark ages, and thought that in the centuries so labeled there were some of the best heads that ever lived for himself minor hobbes was final here was heresy more sweeping than i had then dreamed of my father thought john minor as good a man as any in virginia though his infidelity was well known why then his distress about my heresy my father said it was due to his great affection for me and i made that account in my charge against dogmas why should a heavenly father exact dogmas that cause discord between father and son on earth? My new ideas of slavery, which I did not proclaim nor conceal, caused my father embarrassment. Holding really the old-fashioned views against slavery in the abstract, he was by my abolitionism not only involved personally, but as the leading layman in the Baltimore Conference in Virginia, than in a struggle with the Methodist Church South involving property. But my uncle, George Eustace Conway, leader of the Southern sect, was too sore personally to use my eccentric position as an argument against the Church North. So excited was he that for once he spoke to me with anger. 
the presidential campaign between franklin pierce and general winfield scott then just ended had particularly enlisted two of my uncles judge eustace conway who nominated pierce in the democratic convention had encountered in debate commonwealth's attorney travers daniel the two being warm personal friends hawthorne being the biographer of pierce played a leading part in the campaign uncle travers declared that biography the most complete romance ever invented by hawthorne while uncle eustace could not unreservedly endorse a biographer who admitted that slavery was an evil which providence in its own good time would cause to vanish like a dream i found it painful that hawthorne should descend into the arena of contending parties but he believed that pierce would make a good president during the campaign the pro-slavery philosophy made rapid advance beverly wellford now judge a leading scholar and writer who three years before held aloof from our southern rights association had become an extremist in advocacy of slavery and southernism the wellfords were a historic and conservative family and this change in beverly denoted a new era in northern virginia alas that a burden should be on me to become an antagonist of these beloved companions of my early youth but ah what sustaining visions shone beyond the portal so painfully entered there lay america freed from chains slavery strife there mankind enlightened woman emancipated superstition no more sundering heart from heart war ended peace and brotherhood universal o oh, morning and night serene on my portal is not the time at hand when world's soul shall harmonize with oversoul there beside the rappahannock where two years before emerson had awakened me and set my face to the sunrise now came hawthorne with the blithedale romance sequel of the scarlet letter the seventeenth-century puritan torturing finest hearts to establish the kingdom of heaven has slipped into the nineteenth-century philanthropist sacrificing human hearts to establish his earthly utopia what loving hearts will bleed on my own new altar and prove it built of stone unhewn as any dogma i am abandoning hawthorne's hollingsworth became my type of the reformer i would not be fictitious hells faded the actual hells appear and on my knees i swear that it shall remain my supreme end to save hearts suffering not in eternity but in time and in flesh and blood once i was surprised by the sympathy of a lady distinguished for her wit and beauty the young wife of cousin john conway moncure their home was inglewood where my childhood was passed and it was while calling there that i was as my notebook says laughed at and persecuted about my radicalisms and scepticisms etc insomuch that quote, i am often tempted to renounce all opinions but those of the company i am in end quote. the sympathy came from this admired cousin nay fanny dulney tomlin who confessed that she could not see the justice of slavery on a previous occasion she had taken my side against the dogma of endless punishment supporting her view on the saying of jesus concerning liberation after the uttermost farthing was paid i portrayed this lady as gisela sterling in my pine and palm i mingled a good deal with young men and participated in the debates of the young men's society in fredericksburg on general subjects 
my most serious trouble was in having to preach once more the minister krebs being summoned away suddenly his wife entreated me to take his place for one morning the sermon was one on charity in which i tried to unite the serpent's wisdom with the dove's harmlessness for a congregation unaware of my heresy my father was conspicuously absent so ended my methodist ministry as the time approached for my going to cambridge my father pointing to a volume said to me with emotion these books that you read and are now about to multiply affect my feeling as if you were giving yourself up to excessive brandy i have considered my duty and reached this conclusion i cannot conscientiously support you at cambridge so long as you stay in this house you are welcome to all i have but i cannot assist what appears to me grievous error these are nearly my father's words and i replied that his position was just on february fourteenth eighteen fifty three before leaving home i ordered my horse took a short ride then hitched him to a poplar in front of our house i then carried from the house my empty saddle-bags and laid them on the saddle this fine horse and the accoutrements presented by my father for my circuit i thus returned had he been at home he would have asked me to keep them but it was characteristic of him as of his father to escape from partings my mother watched all the proceedings of my leaving home with burning cheeks and my parting from her and my sister aged sixteen and my two little brothers was very painful it also affected me to part with our servants they were not aware of my new views on slavery but one aunt nancy had divined enough to tell me that her husband benjamin williams had fled to boston he did not belong to my father from whom no servant ever fled aunt nancy had arranged a means by which i could communicate with her several relatives awaited me at the station and bade me affectionate farewell ladies only that evening february fourteenth i heard thackeray lecture in baltimore on the english humorists he was the first great literary man to whom i had listened and his noble presence his simplicity his felicities of thought and expression so impressed me that in after years when i occasionally saw him in london he still appeared to me as if framed in that hall with all the beauty and intelligence of baltimore before him my relatives the cranes with whom i now passed a week were as affectionate as ever and i found my many methodist friends unexpectedly cordial my diary says quote, saw many friends talked much about unitarianism and trinitarianism i was much pleased at the absence of all bitterness among my trinitarian brethren about this matter of mine some of them i found were not inwardly what they were apparently they wished me too to bridge the matter over with arianism in philadelphia i called first on my dear professor crooks then a minister in that city quote, he told me that if i would go to harvard study faithfully and call no man master then bring my creed back there he would subscribe it i passed that evening with the rev dr william henry furness with whom i had exchanged letters it was an ideal home 
Mrs. Furness was beautiful and gracious, and took an almost maternal interest in me on account of my entrance on a pilgrimage that required parting with relatives and associations. It was a household consecrated to truth, humanity, literature, and art, and no one who enjoyed intimacy in it can wonder that the daughter, Mrs. Wister, has attained eminence in literature, that of the sons, William became an accomplished painter, Frank an eminent architect, while Horace is the foremost Shakespearean scholar. Horace was about to enter Harvard College, and I thus had one young friend there to begin with. On February 25 I started for Boston. Our train suffered a collision, and had not my superstition been limited to the Gospels, I might have taken note of this third accident befallen me since I left my Maryland circuit. On my way I heard that the Marlborough, in Washington Street, Boston, was a good hotel with moderate prices. My diary describes it as, quote, a very orderly, pleasant, and orthodox place. They have prayers morning and night, at which a piano with aeolian addition is used. The first thing that strikes me hereabouts is the extreme culture of music. After prayers there is singing till bedtime. End quote. On the 26th I took Dr. Burnup's note of introduction to the historian, Rev. Dr. Alexander Young. He was cordial, kept me till the afternoon, then guided me to historic places, his conversation being a much-needed instruction. He took me to visit an aged woman who remembered the excitement about the Boston Tea Party. The young men in her parents' household had been in the riot, and she told me her recollection of their rushing in and emptying their shoes of tea which they had preserved from destruction for the benefit of their grandmother, dependent upon tea. Nearly a quarter of a century after this I saw some notes about myself by a Methodist preacher of Boston printed in Zion's Herald. He stated that he met me at the Marlborough Hotel on my first Sunday in Boston, where I had just been to hear Theodore Parker. He stated that I was vexed by the sermon, I am referring to the article from memory, and intimated that he found me rather homesick for my old Methodism. I could hardly believe this, but find it confirmed in my notebook. Quote, February 27, went to hear Theodore Parker. His sermon was on good and evil temper. Text, Proverbs 15:17. Better is a dinner of herbs, etc. I don't like him at all, and I wish I had worshipped at King's Chapel with Dr. Peabody, whom with his whole family I love. End quote. I had been introduced to Dr. Ephraim Peabody by Dr. Burnup, and thus into a charming circle. Dr. Peabody's poetic intellect and sweetness of disposition were enshrined in a countenance that remains as if framed in my memory. Mrs. Peabody was one of the much-admired Derby sisters, of whom one married Mr. Rogers of Roxbury, and another the Honorable Robert C. Winthrop. With these three families I found a gracious hospitality. Dr. Derby, unmarried, the brother of these ladies, and charming as they, had been professionally educated in Paris, but devoted himself mainly to the promotion of musical culture in Boston. He superintended the King's Chapel Choir, the finest in Boston. He was a founder of the music hall, and my musical enthusiasm was by him befriended with tickets to oratorios and other concerts. 
as to my worry at the first sermon i heard in boston that of theodore parker i was disturbed by a lack of anything in the music hall or in the secular music sympathetic with my lonely and forlorn heart in the afternoon i was consoled by hearing at the seaman's bethel the famous father taylor i had read the graphic description of him by charles dickens american notes and had heard that emerson was an admirer of father taylor some one told me that taylor was a sort of arian also that in a circle of his ministerial brethren where emerson was spoken of as leading youth to hell father taylor remarked quote, it may be that emerson is going to hell but of one thing i am certain he will change the climate there and emigration will set that way End quote. after listening to his sermon plain practical in no part sensational i approached father taylor and told him i had just left the baltimore conference he urged me to go home with him and on the way was at first severe about my leaving the methodist church i answered that if i could like himself be a methodist and ignore the trinitarian dogma i would have done so but methodism in boston and that in the baltimore conference differed the old man relented well said he our southern brethren are very strict about some things of which they know nothing i then knocked at the door of his heart with the name of emerson and it opened wide our talk became cordial he told me i think that emerson was a contributor to the seamen's bethel and at any rate interested me in his account of emerson as a man and apart from his writings in the evening at supper with the ephraim peabodies i found that unitarians were not made for the sabbath the two daughters one of whom married mr elliot now president of harvard university the other rev dr bellows were lovely enough to consecrate their festal sunday and i found it easy to slip out of methodist sabbatarianism after the mirth most of us went to the music hall and what happiness awaited me there at night says my diary i heard my first oratorio messiah oh the ineffable delight fifty sermons such as i heard in the same place in the morning could not breathe so much piety and sublimity through my soul as that grand oratorio there was something rather hard about parker's manner at first that may have been due to very natural misgivings having found that he was the man most likely to help me fulfill aunt nancy's commission i carried a note of introduction to him from some anti-slavery friend at cambridge but even anti-slavery men might be mistaken a virginian asking the whereabouts of a negro might properly be met with hesitation though it did not occur to me i was courteously received in his large library where he sat at his desk beneath his grandfather's old musket fixed to the wall he took down the fugitive's name etc and said he would make inquiries appointing a day for my return for the rest he showed interest in my experiences and spoke with such admiration of emerson that i began to warm toward him a few days later he went with me through the negro quarters and i got still nearer to him i remember by the way that a man met us and asked the way to the roman catholic church parker took pains to inform him and then remarked a heretic may sometimes point a man to the true church but he did not smile 
at length we entered into the house of some intelligent colored people who saluted parker with the greatest homage which he received with pathetic humility this he said is a virginian but an honorable virginian who wishes to find one benjamin williams who some time ago escaped from his master in stafford county virginia and for whom he has a message from his wife nancy williams i hope you will be able to discover mr williams after a brief consultation with others of the family the man went out to bring some neighbors and meanwhile i was quite overcome by the pleasant conversation of parker with the humble women around him he spoke sweetly and graciously to young and old it was all beautiful and touching and i was ashamed that i had disliked him the man returned with several neighbors and having inquired closely as to the fugitive's appearance they remembered such a man who was in canada a little later i had the satisfaction of sending his address to a free negro in falmouth who conveyed it to aunt nancy when i left home i had a good stock of clothing one hundred forty books and about a hundred dollars i did not doubt that at cambridge i would make some money by preaching at various places and also perhaps by writing articles but from dr burnup in baltimore i learned that only seniors were permitted to preach and that my studies would not allow time for articles on learning that my father could not conscientiously support me at a unitarian school dr burnup collected among his friends one hundred sixty dollars and said it is not a loan but if in the future you find some theological student needing help you can assist him if you have the means i thus went on to cambridge feeling quite rich and when i entered the divinity school had the good fortune to find that an organist was needed in our little chapel i was equal to the performance of simple pieces and the faculty gave me for my services at morning and evening prayers weekdays fifty dollars the college year to this professor noyes added from some fund forty dollars for my instruction by the accomplished organist of park street church boston where i took lessons twice a week three hundred dollars seemed to be affluence in those first days and ah how i loved that sweet little organ most of the divinity students could visit relatives from saturday to monday or on other holidays but in such intervals i visited my beloved organ filled by a petal and locking the chapel door solaced my heart with sweet old tunes that alone remained with me from my methodist days and which surrounded me with a choir invisible but not in any invisible world choirs that were still chanting in virginia in maryland and in my old college at carlisle may three eighteen fifty three is a date under which i wrote a couplet from emerson's wood notes quote, twas one of the charmed days when the genius of god doth flow End quote. for on that day i first met emerson dr palfrey on finding in our conversations that it was emerson who had touched me in my sleep in virginia advised me to visit him i felt shy about invading the spot that is sacred to thought and god but he urged me to go and gave me a letter to emerson i knew too well the importance of a morning to go straight to emerson's house and inquired the way to the old manse it was a fortunate excursion the man i most wished to meet was emerson the man i most wished to see was hawthorne 
he no longer resided at the old manse but as i was gazing from the road down the archway of ash-trees at the house whose mosses his genius had made spiritual moss-roses outstepped the magician himself it has been a conceit of mine that i had never seen a portrait of hawthorne but recognized him as one i had seen in dreams he had evoked at any rate i knew it was my prospero who else could have those soft flashing unsearchable eyes that beauté du diable at middle age he did not observe me and as i slowly followed him towards the village doubts were awakened by the elegance and even smartness of his dress but i did not reflect that prospero had left his isle temporarily buried his book and was passing from his mask to his masquerade as consul at liverpool and man of the world hawthorne was making calls before his departure for europe i felt so timid about calling on emerson it appeared such a one-sided affair that i once turned my steps toward the railway station but soon after twelve i knocked at emerson's door and sent in dr palfrey's letter with a request that i might call on him during the afternoon the children came to say that their father was out but would return to dinner at one and their mother wished me to remain the three children entertained me pleasantly mainly in the bower that alcott had built in the front garden i was presently sent for emerson met me at the front door welcome beaming in his eyes and took me into his library he remembered receiving a letter from me two or three years before on learning that i was at the divinity school and had come to concord simply to see him he called from his library door queenie mrs emerson came and i was invited to remain some days i had however to return to college that evening and though i begged that his day should not be long interfered with he insisted on my passing the afternoon with him when we were alone emerson inquired about the experiences that had led me away from my methodism and about my friendships the gods he said generally provide the young thinker with friends when i told him how deeply words of his met by chance in an english magazine had moved me while i was a law student in virginia he said when the mind has reached a certain stage it may be sometimes crystallized by a slight touch i had so little realized their import i told him that they only resulted in leading me to leave the law for the methodist ministry it had been among the hicksite quakers that i found sympathetic friends after entering on the path of inquiry he then began to talk about the quakers and their inner light he had formed a near friendship with mary roch of new bedford mary roch told us that her little girl one day asked if she might do something she replied what does the voice in thee say the child went off and after a time returned to say mother the little voice says no that said emerson starts the tears to one's eyes he especially respected the quaker faith that every scripture must be held subject to the reader's inner light i am accustomed to find errors in writings of the great men and it is an impertinence to demand that i shall recognize none in some particular volume the children presently came in ellen edward and edith they were all pretty and came up to their father with their several reports on the incidents of the morning edith had some story to tell of a trouble among one or two rough families in concord 
a man had hinted that a woman next door had stolen something, and she had struck him in the leg with a corkscrew. Emerson summed this up by saying, he insinuated that she was a rogue, and she insinuated the corkscrew in his leg. Ellen perceived the joke, and I many times remarked the quickness with which, while not yet out of girlhood, she appreciated every word of her father. The dinner was early, the children were with us, and the talk was the most homelike and merry that I had known for a long time. When the children were gone, Mrs. Emerson told me that they had been christened. Husband was not willing the children should be christened in the formal way, but said he would offer no objection when I could find a minister as pure and good as the children. That was reasonable, and we waited some time. But when William Henry Channing came on a visit to us, we agreed that he was good enough to christen our children. While Emerson was preparing for the walk, I looked about the library. Over the mantel hung a large copy of Michelangelo's Parse. There were two statuettes of Goethe, of whom also there was an engraved portrait on the wall. Afterwards Emerson showed me a collection of portraits, Shakespeare, Dante, Montaigne, Goethe, and Swedenborg. The furniture of the room was rather antique and simple. There were four long shelves completely occupied, he said, by his manuscripts, of which there must have been enough to furnish a score of printed volumes. Our walk was around Walden Pond, on both sides of which Emerson owned land. Our conversation related to the religious ferment of the time. He said that the Unitarian churches were stated to be no longer producing ministers equal to their forerunners, but were more and more finding their best men in those coming from Orthodox churches. That was a symptom. Those from other churches, having gone through experiences and reached personal convictions strong enough to break with their past, would of course have some enthusiasm for their new faith. But the Unitarians might take note of that intimation that individual growth and experience are essential for the religious teacher. I mentioned Theodore Parker, and he said, It is a comfort to remember that there is one sane voice amid the religious and political affairs of the country. I said that I could not understand how I could have tolerated those dogmas of inherited depravity, blood atonement, eternal damnation for Adam's sin, and the rest. He said, I cannot feel interested in Christianity. It seems deplorable that there should be a tendency to creeds that would take men back to the chimpanzee. He smiled at the importance ascribed to academic terms. I have very good grounds for being Unitarian and Trinitarian, too. I need not nibble at one loaf forever, but eat it and go on to earn another. He said that while he could not personally attend any church, he held a pew in the Unitarian church for his wife and children who desired it, and indeed would in any case support the minister, because it is well to have a conscientious man to sit on school committees, to help at town meetings, to attend the sick and the dead. As we were walking through the woods, he remarked that the voices of some fishermen out on the water, talking about their affairs, were intoned by the distance and the water into music, and that the curves which their oars made, marked under the sunlight in silver, made a succession of beautiful bows. This may have started a train of thought related to the abhorrence I had expressed of the old dogmas, to which I had added something about the Methodist repugnance with which I had witnessed in Maryland some Catholic ceremonies. 
Yet, he said, they possess beauty in the distance, when one sees them on the stage, processions of priests in their vestments chanting their hymns at the opera, they are in their place and offend no sentiment. I mentioned a task set me at the divinity school to write an essay on eschatology, and Emerson said, An actually existent fly is more important than a possibly existent angel. Again presently, The old artist said, Pingo in eternitatum, this eternitatum for which I paint is not in past or future, but is the height of every living hour. When we were in a byway among the bushes, Emerson suddenly stopped and exclaimed, Ah, there is one of the gods of the wood. I looked and saw nothing, then turned to him and followed his glance, but still beheld nothing unusual. He was looking along the path before us through a thicket. Where? I asked. Did you see it? he said, now moving on. No, I saw nothing. What was it? No matter, said he gently. I repeated my question, but he still said smilingly, Never mind if you did not see it. I was a little piqued, but said no more, and very soon was listening to talk that made my eschatology seem ridiculous. Perhaps the sylvan god I had missed was a pretty snake, a squirrel, or other little note in the symphony of nature. My instruction in the supremacy of the present hour began not so much in Emerson's words as in himself. Standing beside the ruin of the shanty Thoreau built with his own hands, and lived in for a year at the cost of twenty-eight dollars, twelve and a half cents, Emerson appeared an incarnation of the wondrous day he was giving me. My enthusiasm for Margaret Fuller Osoli, excited by her memoirs, led Emerson in parting to give me a copy of her Woman in the Nineteenth Century, an English edition she had sent him from London with her initials in it. At my request he added his own name and the date. That evening I sat in my room in Divinity Hall, number 34, as one enriched, and wrote, May 3, the most memorable day of my life, spent with Ralph Waldo Emerson. Two days later I attended a great dinner given in Boston to Senator Hale of New Hampshire. I went over with Dr. Palfrey, who was chairman. Emerson was there, but when Palfrey called for a speech from him, he had departed. What was my chagrin, on my return to the Divinity School, to find that Emerson had been there to call upon me? End of chapter 11